0: Deliver us from evil part two. Appointment at noon. We began our ministry in Sharon in September of 1964. And the first months at East Side Church flew swiftly by as we slipped into the various routines connected with any new pastorate. Getting settled in the parsonage, enrolling the older children in school, meeting with church committees, systematic visitation of the membership, plus the prayerful planning of first goals. From the beginning of my ministry in Sharon, I emphasized the importance of the life of prayer. In addition, I made casual but repeated reference to the charismatic renewal in Christianity. Making plans, making plain my own support of this vital move. My preaching was something of a contrast to the previous ministry, but, but by the end of our first year, I felt that my approach was well accepted. Beginning our second year in Sharon, that would be 1965, I also assumed the task of teaching a large adult Sunday school class. As well as conducting a Sunday evening Bible study. Out of that Bible study, the first spiritual breakthrough occurred. Alice and I had been anticipating the time when we could begin a prayer meeting. Yet experience had taught us that such a thing must grow out of genuine spiritual hunger. A vital prayer meeting is not simply something you announce or organize. So we were delighted when the months of consistent Bible teaching produced that hunger. One Sunday night, several parishioners approached me asking, why don't we begin a midweek prayer meeting? Not the ordinary kind we had years ago, but a time of real openness when we seek the kind of answers the Bible talks about. So our Wednesday evening prayer meetings were born and almost immediately things started to happen. Remarkable answers to prayer occurred, such as they had had in Toronto. One woman who came to her first meeting with some nervousness returned the following week to testify with tears in her eyes how a heart palpitation she had suffered for years had simply disappeared as she sat worshiping with us and her healing proved permanent. Others who sought the power of Jesus for healing came to realize they had never really known Jesus himself, at least not in a personal way. As one amazed deacon commented, "'I've been a member of this church for 27 years, and until tonight, I never knew an actual relationship with my Lord was possible.'" Among the encouragements during our first year and a half in Sharon were periodic visits by members of Hillcrest Church, Toronto. On two occasions, Earl and Irene Corbett spent the weekend with us in our home. We were delighted to hear that the prayer meetings in Toronto were still going strong. And we're still believing for Irene's healing, Earl announced cheerfully on the first visit. Irene was her usual quiet self, but so far as we could tell, there had been no real change in her condition. The epileptic seizures had grown neither more frequent nor less. On their second visit, Earl spoke at our Sunday evening Bible study. People were deeply moved by his testimony to the healing of his eye and his matter-of-fact account of other miracles in the Toronto prayer meetings. Some of the stories I had previously shared from the pulpit, but somehow they seemed more authentic coming from a layman. Also, during their second visit, Earl seemed jubilant about Irene. Her healing is almost complete, he told us. She's had lots few seizures lately. Even the doctors see a difference. They've let her cut down on her medicine. And there was a change in Irene, a kind of inner glow about her. "'God has been so good to me,' she said, "'to think that after all these years I'm really getting better. "'This was an altogether different person from the woman "'who had struggled so wildly in my car two years before. "'Why then did I feel a cold shudder of premonition "'as they drove away from the parsonage on Monday morning? "'See you again in a few months,' Earl called "'as they backed out of the driveway. "'And we'll have more, even more to tell then.' but the next report we would hear concerning the Corbett's would be of a vastly different kind and would come with a devastating effect on my own ministry. It is common knowledge among clergymen that the first year or so in a new parish is like a honeymoon. Both minister and congregation— are on their good behavior. The minister doesn't know his people well enough to share deeply in their problems, and the congregation tends to view their minister in terms of what they hope he will be instead of what he really is, a man with struggles and weaknesses of his own. It was midway during our second year in Sharon that things began to go wrong. Not big things, mind you— Not at first. Just the kind of disconcerting squabbles that strain tempers and relationships in any parish. One had to do with the physical plant. Some years previously, Eastside had erected a new sanctuary, and at the time I arrived was using the old church building to house the Sunday school. But there were problems with it. Termites, a leaking roof rotting floorboards most of the younger families in the church felt that we would save money in the long run by tearing the old structure down and erecting a new educational wing the older folks though those who had worshipped in that sacred holy building since childhood were fiercely determined to preserve it it was the kind of conflict that arises in every church At such times in previous parishes I had been able to act as moderator between factions without taking sides myself. After all, the congregation would decide the issue, not me. In Sharon, however, it appeared that I was not going to be permitted this non-aligned role. If you don't cast your vote to save the old church, one elderly man told me, you're no pastor of mine. In the end, the vote went against the old building, and I set out to visit those whose sense of loss would be keenest. Gradually, most became reconciled to the majority decision, but some did not, and these seemed to hold me personally responsible. The elderly man I mentioned had often told me how much my weekly visit meant. It was one of the few events in a very restricted life. From the day of the vote onward, he was never home to my knock. I would spot him sitting on his porch as my car rounded the corner, but by the time I reached the front steps, the porch would be empty, only the rocking chair moving rhythmically back and forth on the creaking boards. Indeed, it soon began to seem to me that whatever I did, there would be hard feelings somewhere. I had written an article for Christian Life magazine about our Wednesday night meetings. When the editor of the magazine, Bob Walker, phoned me from a nearby town on Saturday, I asked him, on impulse, to speak at our worship service the following morning. He graciously agreed, and his talk was both inspiring and, I knew from later comments, helpful. Other comments, however, were less positive. It was not Bob's sermon anyone objected to, but my having asked him without advising the proper committee and getting approval by the appropriate officers. There hadn't been time, I reminded people, if we were to catch this busy man while he was in our area. And in any case, offering one's pulpit to a guest speaker was the minister's prerogative in most churches. Still, the disgruntled comments kept reaching me. Instead of dying down as time went by, criticism grew until at last the real issue surfaced. Bob Walker, it seemed, was an evangelical while Eastside was a liberal church which did did not go in for emotionalism. While Bob's sermon had not been in the least emotional and was obviously, sorry, let me try that again, that Bob's sermon had not been in the least emotional was obviously not the point. Some deep-seated fear or point of resistance had been touched. I tried to communicate my profound conviction that every church needs both the strength of tradition and the thrust of evangelism, but I had the feeling that a deep and widening chasm had opened at my feet. There were other disagreements, making waves for a day or a week, nothing that mutual patience and love could not weather. The first serious division occurred over the Wednesday meeting itself. For all the joy and power of these evenings, I had long been aware that only a small fraction of the congregation was taking part, and I had worried about this. Both from the pulpit and in my pastoral rounds, I had attempted to increase participation. In spite of a notable lack of success in these recruitment efforts, I was totally unprepared for the amount of resentment that I now learned the meetings had aroused— Words like exclusive and private began to trickle back to Alice. Even from one irate lady, secret sessions. I reached, sorry, I searched memory and conscience to see if there was anything in these accusations. The place and hour was posted in the church entrance and announced each Sunday. In the church bulletin, nevertheless, it was clear that a large number of people felt left out, excluded from some select in group. Had we who attended the meeting fallen into the trap of considering ourselves better or more spiritual or more committed than those who didn't? Of all the ways we wound and dishonor the body of Christ, I'd always dreaded most such spiritual cliques. I was thinking of this as I walked home one afternoon when Alice met me at the door of our house with a letter in her hand. With a stricken look on her face, she handed it to me. It was from a young couple who had been members of our Toronto prayer meeting. "'I guess you've heard the tragic news about Irene Corbett,' the letter began." Earl seems to be taking her death very well, but I think he would like to hear from you. Slowly I sank into the chair nearest the door. Irene had been doing so well, the letter continued, that we all had hopes for her complete healing. But apparently the seizures had commenced again, more vicious than ever, and no amount of medication had any effect on them. Earl was afraid to leave her alone alone. "'while he was at work, so Irene was at her sister's home when it happened. "'We think think a seizure must have struck her "'as she stood at the top of the basement stairs. "'She fell before anyone could catch her, "'and her head struck the basement floor. "'She died in the hospital without regaining consciousness. "'I let the letter drop from my fingers without reading the rest. "'I felt Alice's hand on my shoulder. "'I'm sorry, honey,' she said. I sighed and stood up. Poor Earl, I guess he's been too upset to write. I paced the living room, feeling numb inside, trying to adjust to the news. Why, I wondered, when her healing had been so close. Why? What had robbed her of it, robbed her of life itself? I suddenly felt responsible in some way for her death. After all, I had been her pastor for three years. Under my ministry, she had learned of the healing power of Jesus Christ. She had taken part in the power-packed prayer meetings, where miracles had happened, only to be denied a miracle of her own. Perhaps if I had given her more personal attention, or had prayed more fervently, Alice seemed to know what I was thinking. Don't blame yourself, Don, she said gently. You did everything you know to do. We all did. That evening, I sat down and wrote a long letter to Earl, trying to say all the appropriate, helpful things. Truths I believed, but certainly didn't feel at that time. When my depression had still not lifted the following morning, I began to worry. I had lost church members before. Such events are a part of every pastor's life. Besides, Irene, while a close friend, had not actually been a pastoral responsibility of mine for almost two years. Nevertheless, her death seemed somehow indicative of all the failures in my ministry. I began to appraise my work in Sharon in terms of negatives, reminding myself that in a congregation of over 600 members, only a few dozen were finding meaningful spiritual answers in their needs to their needs that my ministry was either not reaching the majority of my parishioners or, worse, making them feel outcasts and second-class church members. I knew this was an unhealthy train of thought, but I couldn't break out of it. It was as if, during the night, something had seemed power... It was as if, during the night, something I seemed powerless to control had settled upon me. As the days went by and it failed to lift, I found my ministry changing from one of joy and effectiveness to one of dogged endurance. This was bad enough, but in addition my low frame of mind opened the door for the reoccurrence of a more acute problem, the one I had felt stirring the night I had driven Irene Corbett home, that sense of dread, of haunting inner terror with no name. For as long as I could remember there had been periods— When this specter had risen within me, what made it particularly frightening was that I never knew when it would appear, only that it would come. Nameless, powerful, relentless in its grip, even the most routine tasks seemed to require herculean efforts. I would pray against it. I would bring my intellect to bear against it. I would seek counseling. Nothing helped. Finally, I would be reduced to a state of miserable hanging on until the thing ran its course. It could last a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, sometimes free of it for months, as I had recently been. I would dare to hope it was gone forever, but it always came back. This time it reappeared one afternoon as I was on my way to make my regular pastoral calls at the hospital. Driving through the streets of Sharon, I suddenly felt a sense of terror at the thought of entering the hospital building. Ridiculous! I was in and out of there half a dozen times a week. Nevertheless, as I approached the parking lot, the fear grew so strong I had to drive around the block twice before forcing myself to turn in. "'I got out of the car, slammed the door so hard "'a woman nearby turned to stare at me "'and walked toward the hospital entrance. "'I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me,' I said aloud. "'Did you speak to me?' a man standing at the hospital steps inquired. "'Just talking to myself,' I said with a nervous smile "'and pushing my way through the door, "'as a Swedish antiseptic hospital odour struck me. "'I stopped short. "'My stomach churned for a minute.' I thought I'd be sick and vomit right there in the foyer. I plunged back through the doors and took a deep breath of fresh cold air, trying to ignore the curious stare of the man on the steps. Get a hold of yourself, Basham, I thought. You've been in this hospital hundreds of times. I knew the fear really had nothing to do with the building or the people in it. Rather, it was something originating in me. Still, I could not go in. I stood there on the steps for two or three minutes, feeling painfully self-conscious. Then, taking another step. Then, taking another deep breath, I turned and re-entered the building. Acknowledging with a nod of my head the receptionist's polite, "'Good afternoon, Reverend,' I strode to the elevator. Two hours and eight visits later, I left the hospital and headed for home, nursing a giant headache. "'Alice, where's the aspirin?' were my first words. I walked into the kitchen carefully, since any sudden movement increased the pounding in my head. "'Another rough day,' Alice said, counting four white tablets into my hand. I nodded. "'That old fear bugaboo hit me again, at the hospital.' I looked at Alice over the rim of my glass. "'Can you imagine what it was like trying to minister to sick people while I was having such a battle myself?' Downing the aspirin, I headed for the living room, turned on the television, and slumped into the nearest chair. The next morning wasn't better. The fear was gone. It had crawled back into whatever hiding place it inhabited between attacks. But the knowledge that this was an area where my Christianity seemed powerless simply added to my state of depression. From the time I got out of bed that morning, nothing went right. The children were slower than usual getting dressed, which made breakfast even more hectic than usual, which meant that by the time I left for my office, I was in such a funk that I forgot to kiss Alice goodbye. It was all the children's fault, of course, not my own. The funk had nothing to do with the unpleasant trip to the bank I would have to make in a few hours. What a lousy way to start a day, I mumbled as I unlocked the door of my study and let myself in. What a dank and gray-smelling place this church was. I sat down at my desk and flipped open my Bible, well-worn from previous days when I had found satisfaction in its pages. Perhaps it would be helpful to read a psalm. After about five minutes, I snapped the Bible, Bible shut. David, that morning, seemed far too spiritual for me. So I turned to work on my sermon, but my notes were as dry and lifeless as they had been the day before. I leaned back in my chair and stared out the window. Did all the ministers have to go through this period of depression? What had happened to the joy and victory I had known those final months in Toronto and for the rest of the year at Sharon? Did every pastor struggle through the rounds carrying out his high calling as a dull routine? Of course he did, at least for short times, but... I kept thinking how I'd been an ordained minister for almost 15 years yet only on rare occasions had even approached the level of effectiveness I dreamed of in seminary. So few people thought the years seemed to have, sorry, so few people through the years seemed to have been helped, and none lately. How could I go on preaching victory when my own life currently showed nothing but frustration? My eyes fell upon a stack of books on my desk, all treating various aspects of the charismatic renewal. I shoved them around so that I wouldn't see the titles. They only made me feel worse. Up until a few weeks ago, I had found them exciting and helpful. In fact, I began work on a book manuscript myself. Now I felt like a hypocrite, even having them on my desk slouching in my chair that morning i could not see that these very frustrations were shortly going to crowd into my into a spiritual discovery it would be a it would be a discovery which would set me free from many of my own bondages and at the same time catapult me into a ministry far more demanding than any i had dreamed of at the time I could not, I, at the time, I could see none of God's hand in what was happening. I stood up. No sense feeling sorry for, your, for yourself, Basham, I muttered as I paced up and down in my study. But making the statement did not change the fact. I was in a mood for self pity, so I kept it rolling, looking for things to complain about. I stopped in front of a picture on the wall, the Hillcrest Church, Toronto. Not only did it recall Irene's tragic death, but other unpleasant memories as well. I recalled how one member of that prosperous congregation, knowing full well the modest salary the church was paying me, still acted surprised, still acted surprised that I did not hire a housekeeper. It would make things so much easier for Alice. Don't you know I said to that memory that $5 in the hands of a preacher buys no more hamburgers than it does in the hands of a bank president During the months of spiritual victory I had scarcely thought about finances now all my old money worries returned in force Even at seminary Alice and I had been aware of how little ministers make and our years in the pastorate had not changed the think lack Pattern. Salary increases had been more than offset by our fast growing family. Only by constant scrimping had we managed to stay out of debt. Well, almost out of debt. We had long since resorted to the awkward but necessary ruse of consolidating our obligations. When our bills reached a critical level, I would borrow 500 from the bank and settle our accounts. Then as we retired the loan, the bills would accumulate once more until by the time the loan was repaid, we had to borrow all over again. Thus, we kept our creditors happy, the bank happy, and ourselves barely afloat. And this morning, I was going to the bank once more. Grabbing my hat and coat, I left the office, climbing into the car, and headed downtown. It was the second such trip in six months. Our financial situation had become acute since we moved to Sharon. We were living as frugally as before, but our oldest daughter, Cindy, had entered high school, and Lisa had started kindergarten. I couldn't tell which was harder on the wardrobe. Steering through the morning traffic, I fed my resentment with reflections that the whole system was unfair. A clergyman had to have as much education as other professionals. He carried as much responsibility, but he received only a fraction of the income. Sanitation workers were earning as much as I did. Nor did the thought of the meeting where I was due that noon to. Nor did the thought of the meeting where I was due that noon do anything to raise my spirits as I sat on the bench outside the personal loan department. It would be part of the irrelevant make-work which plagued everyone in the church clergy and lay people alike activity which did not meet the real needs of the people activity for the sake of activity and most of the time i admitted ruefully to myself east side church was no better than any other prayer meetings and bible study notwithstanding we spent much more time working at food fun and fellowship how i'd come to despise that trinity we did working on our relationship to God and with one another. Right now, we were in the process of holding endless committee meetings to find ways to raise money to build the new wing where we could have more rooms to hold more meetings. Why did we hide behind a smoke screen of busy work like this? In my gloom, it almost seemed to me there was some great silent conspiracy at work to prevent our church, any church, from ministering at deep, significant levels by keeping us tormented by trivia. But the meeting was, but the meeting this 12 o'clock noontime was not, for once, on behalf of the East Side Building Drive. It was the monthly clergyman's luncheon, and it was at these affairs that I often felt most keenly the unreality of what I was doing. While I was still in seminary, I had become aware of the fact that I was being groomed for a role. I was not to be myself. I was to be a minister, if you please, a reverend. At the end of seven years of training, I was no longer just a Christian named Don Basham. I was the Reverend Don Wilson Basham, B.A. B.D., a man properly equipped to play the ministerial game. But it was a game in which we were the first losers. I knew that my current depression stemmed at base from a faulty relationship with God, but it was almost impossible for me to talk about this, especially... To other ministers, the rules of the game called for soft peddling spiritual answers to personal problems. Be efficient, be friendly, and hardly ever talk about God. That was the formula. At the last, at the last meeting, the Uh, loan—sorry, let me try that again. At last, the loan officer summoned me to his desk. Many forms and questions later, I left the bank with $500 credited to my account and my eye on the clock. I was due right now at the luncheon where the ministerial game would be in full swing. Game time was 12 noon. The playing field, the dining room of a nearby restaurant. The players, 12 local clergymen. The name of the game was Ministerial Fellowship. Originally, I had hoped that these meetings... Originally, I had hoped at these meetings to get to know my colleagues more personally, but it hadn't turned out that way. Even in the informal gatherings, we carefully wore our masks. I looked around the table as I walked in and sat down, thinking of the problems we all knew we had. Problems we never shared. Problems we never prayed about together. The minister opposite me, new in our community, had divorced his wife during his former pastorate. His present church had hired him only under pressure from their conference hierarchy, as their denomination hierarchy. After several months, he had still struggled to find a way to minister to a hostile congregation. Next to him, a quiet, gray-haired minister, whose wife lay ill in the hospital with terminal cancer, listened to his account of a Sunday school awards program without comment. Beyond both of them sat a stocky, balding pastor with a clerical collar, a booming voice, and two delinquent teenage daughters. Beside me, the cheerful extrovert, who pastored a small church and taught high school English in a nearby town, kept his jovial smile in place. The smile, which never quite covered the pain in his eyes, had been there since the day his wife had been admitted admitted to a mental institution. Everyone in the room, I noted, nursed some private misery. I knew that these men were struggling as sincerely as I was with their problems, but that each of us seemed shackled by defeat. And all the while, our professionalism conspired to keep us from sharing our deepest concerns. Well... The day I was desperate enough that I resolved to step out from behind the mask. I was going to take a risk. It was going to take some maneuvering, for the game was going as scheduled. The jovial joke-telling, too loud, the laughter in return, the careful adherence to small talk, dad jokes, Nevertheless, I was determined to make the effort. Over dessert, I began. You know, fellas, I need your help. I intended to talk about the fears. Somehow I found myself saying, I've been in a real slump lately. My ministry seems like a waste of time. I feel as if, well, as if I've been deserted by God. Any of you ever feel like that? "'The room grew suddenly very quiet. "'I waited for the first words of understanding. "'The man across from me glanced at the minister sitting next to him, "'then down at his coffee cup. "'I tried again. "'Lately I have the feeling that I am just performing, "'going through the motions without coming to grips with anything real. "'It's as if I am playing some big, meaningless game.' Know what I mean? I glanced around the room again. I was blushing. I had not thought this would be so hard. Not one eye met mine. The dishes on the table seemed to have some huge fascination. Miserably, I tried one more time. This time, I told them about the recurring fear and the experience at the hospital. I just don't seem to be able to do anything about this fear, I finished. I wish you men would comment. I know it's not on your agenda today, but I really need... I was interrupted. The extrovert near me suddenly reached over and slapped me on the back. Basham, you're taking yourself too seriously. What you need is a day off. "'Get out of town for a few hours. "'You'll snap out of it.' "'He turned to the others. "'Say, come to think of it, "'that's a great idea. "'Why don't we plan an all-day retreat? "'Just the twelve of us.' "'Then, as if frightened by his own impulsiveness, he added, "'Of course I am too busy to do it any time soon.' "'He pulled out his little black date-book. "'How about right after Easter?' I watched as all the men pulled out their little black books. All agreed that their schedules were too crowded now, but maybe after Easter it would work out. The trouble was their schedules were crowded. I knew their dilemma, for it was mine as well constant demands on our time. The pressure to fulfill an endless number of organizational duties as if they were profoundly important. The need to appear happy, wise, and successful even if we weren't. The feeling of guilt when we took time off for ourselves and families. The fear that if we let our own weaknesses show, we would somehow be betraying our calling. I listened to the men resume their earnest small talk, carefully steering around my plea for help. I knew many of them understood what I meant and sympathized with my struggle, but the rules of the game just didn't allow us to acknowledge these things. Like me, they were caught in the system." Finally, I could stand it no longer. With a murmured apology about pressing pastoral duties, I hurried from the room. It was a moment before I realized that someone had followed me, a gaunt, balding man in his fifties. I knew Chester Bates as the pastor of a small evangelical church in Sharon, noted for its biblical fundamentalism and acrobatic top-of-the-lungs preaching, but his voice was gentle as he spoke to me on the sidewalk outside of the restaurant. Don, I didn't want you to get away without sharing something which might help you. I listened, grateful for even one man who would discard the mask. I realized that you and most of the others in there, he shrugged in the direction of the room we had just left, have far more education than I have. But the problem you described sounded so similar to a period I went through some years back. He paused and peered earnestly at me through wire-rimmed spectacles. Do you know what proved to me more helpful than anything else? I shook my head. It was the realization that I had a personal enemy who was out to undermine my ministry. I stared at him blankly. But Chester, I don't know anyone here in Sharon who would personally come after. Chester Bates shook his head. That's not what I mean. I mean a spiritual adversary, an enemy in high places. The Bible calls him Satan. Once I understood who was opposing my ministry. It was an effort to keep my face straight. Surely the man didn't literally mean Lucifer. But as he continued talking, it was apparent that he did. Here we were, two presumably sane adults, standing across the street from an S.O. station on a Tuesday afternoon and discussing Satan as though he might come strolling by at any minute. Chester, I interrupted at last, I appreciate your sympathy and concern. I really do. I hoped I didn't sound as condescending as I felt. It means a great deal to me. I pumped his hand a little too energetically "'and sprinted for my car. "'That's the trouble with biblical literalists,' I fumed as I roared away. "'A pat answer for everything. "'So we're saved the discomfort of thinking. "'The man belonged in the Middle Ages. "'Satan, indeed. "'What a very convenient excuse "'when our own lack of faith or laziness or bad planning spoils everything. "'The devil, it's his fault!' My fundamentalist friend had meant well, but all he had done was to add irritation to my depression. Back home, I swallowed some more aspirin and plunked myself down in front of the television. More and more often in recent weeks, I had found myself attempting to escape my problems by watching reruns of old movies. It didn't help, but I watched them anyway. The more frustrated I felt, the more television I watched. By supper time I had convinced myself that I didn't really have to be at the boring interchurch planning committee that evening. When I switched off the set at one AM I got to thinking again of that afternoon's ministerial meeting. Each of these men I knew must have understood my cry, because each had some crushing problem of his own. Yet only one had offered any kind of advice, and it was too far out. "'to consider seriously. "'Nevertheless,' I sighed as I undressed in the darkness, "'something seems to have a stranglehold on the church, "'and on me as well.'" When the alarm clock went off at five o'clock the next morning, My hand fumbled for the off button. "'This is stupid,' I groaned. "'It's not going to do any good.' "'What is it, honey?' Alice's soft voice was warm, with sleep. "'Something I've got to do,' I said vaguely. "'Go back to sleep.' Still thinking how nice it would be to roll over for another two hours, I struggled out of the covers, got into my clothes and groped my way downstairs. The living room was pitch dark and singularly and uninviting as I viewed it from the bottom of the stairs at 5.05 that morning. I switched on a lamp and at the end of the couch sat down with my Bible. Waves of sleepiness washed over me. Five minutes later, I got up and started walking around. I went to the refrigerator and poured a glass of fruit juice. I read the Bible aloud, hoping that the sound of my own voice would keep me awake. At last, after a year, it seemed, had passed, I heard Alice and the children stirring around. All in all, it was a pretty miserable first attempt. The next morning was just as bad, and the next, even after a week there had been no change. The struggle to get up was just as intense, the battle to stay awake just as irritating. I was tempted to go back on my commitment, but somehow stubborn resolve held me to it. Each morning I managed somehow to overrule the protests of mind and body, to climb out of bed and to keep the commitment to read my Bible early every morning. Then, late in the second week, things began to break. Although getting up was as irritating as ever, on about the twelfth morning, the living room seemed to welcome me. I felt an assure I felt a quiet assurance that Heaven watched and approved of my efforts to break out of my slump. Little by little, my spirit responded to the new routine, and the stillness of those early hours began to beckon me attractively. The initial shock of rising never diminished, but once up and dressed, I found myself almost eager to begin prayer. Being in the presence of God was good for me, like sunlight nourishing a garden. That in combination... With fasting, perhaps permanently, mindless television watching, granted me a breakthrough. As a result, things began to change outwardly. Gradually, a vigor and strength was restored to my preaching. I became more patient with the tedium of dry, ineffectual meetings. The headaches, which had plagued me for several weeks, disappeared. I turned once more to the manuscript of the book I was writing, the personal narrative of my search for the power of God's Holy Spirit. One morning I was pacing up and down in my office at church, struggling with this manuscript, when suddenly I stopped short. For the first time I saw the possibility that the events which had been occurring in my life were all going somewhere. In front of me sat the pile of books about the charismatic movement— They had remained on my desk just as I had left them weeks ago, titles turned away so that I would not be reminded of Christians whose lives seemed to be filled with victory and power. Now, in a slightly self-conscious gesture, I turned the titles around again. I was suddenly glimpsing all that was happening as part of a pattern, perhaps the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps after the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we always face a time of perplexity until we take the steps, until we take the steps we are intended to take. The baptism is the time when God endows his people with power. Doubtless, in God's ecology, each of us is supposed to use that power in some special ministry, in the body of Christ, healing, evangelism, and prophecy. But if for some reason we have not learned what our ministry is supposed to be, or if we cannot use our new power because of a local situation in the church, wouldn't we be left with a terrible sense of frustration? Was the valley I had been going through then God's way of showing me I had not yet found His direction in my work? One Sunday morning, right in the middle of service, I felt prompted to change sermon topics. I, rare, I very rarely did this. Yet on this particular morning, obedient to my prompting, I pushed my sermon notes aside and spoke informally about our need to trust the Word of God. As I spoke, my attention kept being drawn to a member of the congregation, Mrs. Abel Stern. Mrs. Stern was a very large lady who always sat in the third row. During the sermon this morning, she began shaking her head, either affirmatively or negatively, depending on whether or not she agreed with what I was saying. I know God's will. Read his word, I told the congregation. For the will of God and the word of God always agree. Everything he promises in his word, we as Christians have the right to claim. God still speaks to us today through the bible i found myself let me turn the page here illustrating this impromptu sermon with personal references to occasions when scripture had spoken directly to me in a most powerful way mrs sterns head shaking became more and more negative after the service i took my post at the door part of the preacher's game giving him an opportunity to be pleasant to the maximum number of people with the minimum amount of involvement. With a dread I could not account for, I saw Mrs. Stern work her way towards me. Her lips were set in a thin, angry line. I had no way of knowing that, in fact, she was going to be one of God's direction markers. Ignoring my outstretched hand, Mrs. Stern began in a loud voice. Of course, one expects ministers to talk about the Bible, Reverend Williams, uh, Basham, Though I had been at Eastside for over two years, Mrs. Stern persisted in calling me by the name of my predecessor. But God also speaks to us in other ways. Personally, I find Bible reading tedious. I much prefer to have God speak to me directly during my prayer time. Wincing at the condescension in her tone, I murmured something about checking out our individual revelations against the written word. "'I know the voice of God when he speaks to me,' Mrs. Stern announced, "'and ignoring my still outstretched hand, she swept past me and out the door. "'I greeted the rest of the line with only half my attention. "'Mrs. Stern's hostility confused me. "'She was not like this to everyone, only me. "'She was in fact known throughout the church for her many acts of kindness and service. "'Why was I the target for her anger?' Was it because I had not been sufficiently impressed with her spirituality? At every church gathering, she had some new comprehension to share. To me, it often sounded offbeat and eccentric. Once, with a strange, dreamy expression on her face, she had had confided that her relationship to God had become so intimate that it was like a physical love affair, so that any attempt of her husband to touch her physically produced feelings of revulsion. I had suggested to Mrs. Stern that such sensuous experiences did not necessarily stem from God, meaning, at the time, only that they might be coming from her own subconsciousness. But though I had made this commitment in private—sorry— But though I had made this comment in private, to spare her embarrassment, and had put it as tactfully as I knew how, it was apparent she had never forgiven me. The following Wednesday, I heard a story which encouraged, and at the same time puzzled me. In my pastoral calling, I stopped in the late afternoon at the home of a young couple who, I knew, were having financial difficulties. The wife greeted me at the door with unexpected warmth. "'Do come in,' she said, showing me to the only soft chair in the sparsely furnished living room. "'I wish John were here. He works the late shift at the mill, you know. "'But I have something important to tell you. "'Your sermon Sunday saved our marriage.' "'Really? How?' "'Well, you see, my husband gambles, or at least he did. "'We've lost thousands of dollars in the last few years because of it.' Whenever I'd complained about it, he would just laugh and say, I can't help it, honey, it's my gambling demon. I finally got so fed up, she went on, that I decided to divorce him. I was planning to leave Monday, but wanted to attend Eastside one more time. Sunday night, I couldn't sleep for thinking how you said we should live by the word of God. Lord, I said, if you wanted to, you could speak to me through your word right now. Then I got out my Bible, took a deep breath, and opened it. The woman's voice grew shaky and tears appeared in her eyes. The very first words I read were these, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. She shook her head. I was flabbergasted. I knew it was more than coincidence. The next morning, I told John how I had been planning to leave home because of his gambling until I read that verse. For the first time in our ten years of marriage, John cried, John cried, Then he said, Honey, whatever it is that's been making me gamble, I want to be free of it. Then he asked Jesus to help him. Always in the past, Reverend, John has cashed his paycheck himself. The children and I never saw much of it, but last night, she blinked back tears of gratitude, last night he brought his check and gave it to me. On the way home, I found the palms of my hands sweating. The story of the family's reconciliation should have made me feel good, and and it did. I was especially grateful that I had followed that impulse to change the sermon topic. But there was something else about the story, something which haunted me. I kept running it over and over in my mind. It was as if God was trying to call my attention to something which I was just not ready for. About three months after I began my morning prayer discipline, events started to to occur, which at the time I did not see as nudges from God, but rather as minor disasters. The The first of these incidents took place at a regular meeting of our board of elders, a meeting which began routinely enough midway through it. However, Ward Weatherby, an elder who had never voiced any objection to my ministry before, made a critical remark. "'Don,' he said with some testiness in his voice, "'it seems to me that if you have become so preoccupied "'with what you call the spiritual life of the church "'that you are neglecting your administrative duties. "'There's more to running a church than preaching "'and visiting the sick and conducting a few prayer meetings. "'I intended to answer with tact and patience.' I had always prided myself on my skill in these situations. Instead, I began to defend my ministry, and with every word I seemed to put my foot in my mouth. What began as a quiet discussion developed into a loud argument. The other elders joined in, hurling angry remarks, both at Ward Weatherby and at me. To my consternation, the whole meeting fell apart. Hostility and antagonism flared everywhere. At last the chairman adjourned what had really ceased to be a meeting. I trudged out to my car and drove home angry. Not with Ward Weatherby and the others, but with myself. And Ward Weatherby's criticisms weren't really all that bad, I confessed to Alice and the children next morning at breakfast. I don't know how things got out of hand so quickly. It was as if something vicious just swept in the room and blew the meeting sky high. But it was not just the meeting. Were you able to help the Morleys? The church secretary asked me as I entered the office a few minutes later. The Morleys, I echoed. They were one of the most active and influential families in the church. Consternation showed on the secretary's face. Didn't you see my note on your desk? I went into my office. There, right in the middle of the desk, lay the note. Harold Morley called. Wants to see you. Says it's urgent. I'll never know how I overlooked that, I said. Today, I'm not sure I'd make that statement. I immediately drove to the Morley home and apologized, but it was too late. They needed help yesterday, not now. A rebellious young son was threatening to leave home, and the Morleys wanted him to talk to, wanted me to talk to him. The boy agreed to wait, but when I didn't show up, he packed his things in disgust and left. The parents were bitter, and my excuse that I didn't get your message sounded lame even to me. Clobbered again, I muttered as I drove away from their house. The next afternoon, I had a telephone call from Mrs. Stern. She wanted to see me immediately. She opened the door even before I could ring the bell. "'I wasn't sure you would come after what happened with the Morleys,' she said. "'Bad news moves fast. "'But that's not what I wanted to talk to you about, Reverend Williams. "'I know that—I know what I'm saying—' "'Let me try this—try this again. "'I know what I'm about to say may sound strange,' she paused. "'I—I wouldn't like you to pray for me.' "'It obviously cost her a great deal to make the request.' "'Sorry, I need to restart this. "'I wasn't sure you would come after what happened with the Morleys,' she said. "'Bad news moves fast. "'But that's not what I wanted to talk to you about, Reverend Williams. "'I know what I'm about to say may sound strange,' she paused. "'I I would like you to pray for me. "'It obviously cost her a great deal to make the request.' "'Pray? "'About what?' I asked gently. "'Well, it may sound silly.' "'but I've had a most awful feeling lately, "'a feeling that something is determined to keep me me from obeying God, "'something evil,' and she gave a little shudder. "'We all have times like that, Mrs. Stern,' I answered in my best pastoral tone. "'Man is basically selfish, and Christian life is a continual struggle to—' "'but obviously Mrs. Stern was in no mood for a lecture.' "'She dismissed my words with a curt wave of her hand. "'I know all that. "'What I'm describing is altogether different. "'It's more like... like... "'Even as I watched her struggle for the right words, "'a shadow seemed to pass across her face. "'An angry light flickered in her eyes and her hands clenched. "'Suddenly and unreasonably, "'I found myself remembering Irene Corbett "'that night in the Toronto prayer meeting. "'Jerking my head to shake off the impression, "'I took out my New Testament.' Let me read a passage of scripture which may help, Mrs. Stern, I said as I turned to the book of Romans. Even Paul, you know, had a struggle against, against self, Romans seven twenty one through 22. So I find it to be a law that when I go to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. Paul called on the Lord to help, and received it, I concluded. And so can we. We can ask God to help you in this. Mrs. Stern seemed unconvinced, but she agreed to let me pray. I think, I said as I concluded the prayer, that you'll find things better tomorrow. But the next day, Mrs. Stern was not better. She telephoned me four times in as many days to report that she still felt harassed, that my prayers were doing no good. After the fourth call, I was thoroughly discouraged. The next step, I knew, would be to refer Mrs. Stern to good psychological counseling. Perhaps the time had come for that. I decided I would spend the following morning's prayer vigil seeking guidance for Mrs. Stern. Little did I realize that when that hour came I would be caught up in a desperate intercession for my own life. Right now I had a sermon to prepare. The notes lay on my desk, untouched since the night of the disastrous elders' meeting. The text seemed to mock me, considering the events of the last few days. I am, cu- I am come that they may have life, and that they might have it more abundantly." Was the Morley's son experiencing abundant life? Was Mrs. Stern? Why was this Bible promise not being realized at East Side Church in 1966? Even as I asked the question, it came to me that I was quoting only a portion of the verse. I flipped my Bible to the tenth chapter of John and found it: The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy." I am come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. A thief, a thief cometh. Funny, that was exactly what it felt like, as though something were robbing us of our joy. And peace and power, Jesus clearly told us, could be ours. I gave a dry little grimace at my own thought. In a minute, you'll be sounding like Chester Bates, I reproached myself, the Christian fundamentalist preacher. But then, what was this thief Jesus spoke of, this force or entity to oppose to himself? But then, what was this thief Jesus spoke of, this force or entity so opposite to himself? Oh, of course I knew what his hearers back in those days understood. At seminary, we had studied the first century world and its naive cosmology and its concept of a personal devil. The thief to the unlettered Palestinian peasant would have meant quite simply Satan or the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. Our most sophisticated age, of course, our more sophisticated age, of course, recognized it. ...as another of Jesus' vivid metaphors, concrete and picturesque, ideally suited to the mentality of his day. In seminary, I had learned that the notion of Satan... As a literal being, as an actual personification of evil, was an outgrowth of ancient theology, stemming from the biblical writer's anthropomorphic view of good and evil. Modern theology does not embrace any such primitive dualism, a reality divided between a good God and a bad God. There is only one all-encompassing source, the ultimate ground of all being— Yet even as I repeated the unassailable phrases, certain nagging doubts, which I had long kept submerged, came floating to the surface. To be honest, I had to admit that the same theology, which dismissed personalized evil and the myth of Satan, also left no room for the miraculous gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit, which had so profoundly touched my own life. Yet how could any trained mind seriously entertain the thought of Lucifer as an actual being? The spooky idea of a negative personality out there someplace, someone bent on killing and stealing and destroying, was simply... This simply did not fit in with any modern understanding of the subconscious and societal sources of our difficulties... It sounded like the creation of a paranoid mind. Someone's out there to get me. There was a form of mental illness which saw an enemy behind every lamppost, interpreted every mishap as a persecution by the evil one. I had met one or two such people in my life. They were pitiful figures. I snapped my Bible shut and stood up. I had preached on the Abundant Life text in Toronto and would simply get out the earlier sermon outline and work from it. The next morning, the alarm went off at its usual spine-jarring five o'clock. In a few minutes, I had settled on the couch, the Bible open on my lap. Mrs. Stern's problem occupied my mind. The first inkling of trouble came like a cold film on my face. At first, I thought I was having another fear attack like the one at the hospital, but it was not like that. This was something different, something far worse. It was as though a smothering invisible shroud were suddenly dropping over me, cutting off the air. I struggled for breath. I tried to stand up, but I was wrapped in the suffocating presence. What happened? Oh, God, help me. My lungs strained for air. My heart hammered in my throat. No escape, the thought kept coming. There's no escape. I made a despairing effort to hurl myself from the sofa to burst out of this weird, clinging thing, but my legs would not move. It was unbelievable. I was dying. Dying here in my living room with Alice just upstairs. It's a heart attack, I thought. I'm having a coronary. I clung to consciousness. My body and mind grew numb, and then beyond the numbness, something like... A blizzard of ice stung every cell in my body. I shivered uncontrollably and broke into cold perspiration. Summoning the last bit of strength I could muster, I cried out, Lord Jesus, I will not let you go. In desperation, I wrapped my arms around my body and hugged myself as though I could hold my very life within me. Then, just as a tornado rack, uh, wreaks its habit. "'Havoc and rages swiftly on, the smothering pall receded. "'I drew a long, rasping breath. "'Thank you, Lord, thank you,' I gasped. "'As my breath and my heartbeat returned to normal, "'I thought, I must get to a doctor. "'But even as I was starting for the phone, "'I knew the attack was really over. "'A sense of stillness spread through me. "'By the time the family arose at 7 a.m., "'I was feeling quite fit, "'with nothing left of the experience "'except the frightening memory of it.' Several times during the day I considered seeing a physician, but each time I decided against it. Neither did I tell Alice, at least not until the second time. The second attack came a week later. I awakened, as always, at 5 a.m. Even as I reached to shut off the alarm clock came the rising sense of dread and foreboding. It's coming, it's coming, I thought. My arm was stretched towards the nightstand, the alarm clock still ringing when the suffocating airlessness descended. "'Once again, it seemed impossible either to breathe "'or to pray through the stifling thing closing around me. "'I wanted to run, out the door, down the stairs, "'out the house, anywhere. "'With my last strength, I held myself to a sitting position. "'Alice switched on the light. "'What is it, honey?' There was fright in her voice. I don't know. I feel strange. Alice came around the bed and shut off the alarm. She sat down beside me, taking my hands in hers. I leant weakly against her shoulder as the awful sleet storm knifed its way through my body. Once again, I heard myself saying, Jesus, I will never let you go. I gripped Alice's hand so hard I felt her wince. Then, like the first attack, this one subsided as quickly as it had come. Thank God I sighed, sitting up straight once more. Alice put her hand on my forehead. Dawn! What's the matter? Nothing, I said, taking grateful gulps of air. Nothing, now. But, Don, something's very much the matter. You get back under the covers while I call the doctor. She reached for the telephone. No, don't do that. It isn't necessary. I tell you, I'm all right. Alice put down the receiver reluctantly. What on earth is going on? Just some sort of weird dizzy spell, I guess, but I'm fine now. I stood up and began to get dressed. I'm going downstairs. You go back to sleep. Alice argued with me for a while longer, then insisted on accompanying me downstairs to the living room. We spent the next two hours, alternately, thanking God for bringing me through the fearsome attack and pleading with God to reveal to us what was going on. Why, when our personal relationship with Jesus had become more meaningful than ever, was I being subject to these bizarre attacks— That afternoon, Mrs. Stern came to my office at church, very agitated. The tone of her voice, even the appearance of her face, changed and shifted rapidly as she spoke. When I hinted that I had the names of several qualified psychiatrists, she grew furious. Her last words lingered in the little room. I came to you for help. Can't you give it to me? I leaned back in my chair after she had gone and started, and stared morbidly out the window. So many things had happened lately which seemed to defy my understanding of spiritual principles. I knew without question that a real note of spiritual victory had been struck when I began the early morning prayer vigil, both from inward and outward evidences this was apparent. Yet rising up in the face of the fact was a series of disasters. Take the elders meeting. I was still baffled over that nasty eruption. "'Nor was I the only one. "'In the days following that meeting, "'several of the men had apologized to me "'for things they had said. "'They seemed as puzzled as I "'about what had happened. "'They missed, "'and that missed appointment with the Morleys. "'I still could not understand "'what had blinded me "'to that note on my desk. "'The Morleys had not been back in church "'since the incident. "'I bit my lip, at the next memory, these strange physical attacks during the morning prayer time. Could it be more than coincidence that they had both taken place when they did? For a fleeting moment, I recalled how Irene Corbett's seizures, at least most of them, seemed to take place during prayer meetings. And finally, my patent inability to help Mrs. Stern. Whatever was plaguing her, it seemed to laugh at my efforts to help her. How could I reconcile the apparent contradiction between my improved personal relationship to God and the series of, well, almost assaults on my ministry? They were not assaults, of course. I mean, that would suppose someone out there doing the assaulting. It was simply an accident of timing, a series of unfortunate coincidences that happened to fall as I was making progress elsewhere in my ministry. There could hardly be any connection between, and then I recalled something. Jesus' own ministry, right at the start, when he had received his Father's approval, and the Holy Spirit had descended upon him, and he was all ready to set about God's business. What was his very first experience? An encounter with Satan, whatever we in the 20th century were to understand by this word. But whoever or whatever Satan was, it was obvious that something had made its appearance at this point, which was opposed to his mission. Something which tried to get in and spoil things, to divert him and get him, that is Jesus, off track. I suspected it was his, that is, Jesus' human nature, or the collective unconsciousness of the race, or some such influence. But whatever it was, Jesus had suffered an attack on his, on his ministry, just as I was doing. My heart bounded. Even here, Jesus had gone before to show the way. In this, too, Jesus would be the model on which to base... Our lives, though the terminology and the intellectual framework might have changed in 2000 years, the basic truth had not. I would read the New Testament to discover how Jesus had dealt with this opposition or negative force, however, differently Jesus's age and mine understood it. At 5.04 the next morning, I switched on the lamp by the living room sofa, picked up a notebook and pencil, and opened my Bible, flipping through the Gospels, jotting down passages that dealt with Lucifer. To my consternation, I came face to face almost immediately with a fact even less palatable to the rational, 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 to the rational mind. While Jesus had perceived his adversary in the wilderness as Satan or the devil, in his ministry he dealt most often not with this entity— but with evil spirits and demons, not with a single enemy, but with a plural enemy. I chewed the end of my pencil over that bit of information. I had the feeling I was opening a kind of Pandora's box. Demons, evil spirits, ugly little things running around. The idea repelled me even more than the concept of Satan. I suppose the one thing that kept me from dropping the whole matter right then was a persistent memory of Irene Corbett. I just couldn't dismiss the idea that something evil had usurped control over her, even as Alice had hinted on that night Irene had behaved so strangely, something that had robbed her of her healing and led her to a very tragic death. More than anything else, I was seeking an answer to why so many prayers for her had failed. Had I suspected, even for a moment, the drastic effort my investigation was to have on my own life and ministry, I would have left the subject strictly alone. But I didn't know, and so I read on, filling page after page of the notebook, increasingly amazed to discover that a very high percentage of Jesus' ministry dealt with these evil spirits. Casting out demons and healing seemed to go hand in hand— That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Matthew chapter 8 verse 16. More upsetting, he seemed to expect his disciples to carry on this dual function. And he called to him, that is Jesus, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity Matthew 10:1 This the disciples did quote the 70 returned with joy saying Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name Luke 10:17 These were of course I kept reminding myself the thought forms of his day Jesus said demons or unclean spirits when speaking to his followers because these were concepts they understood. To us, Jesus would say psychosomatic ailment or schizophrenia or psychosis or what have you. And not for the first time, I wondered at the inscrutable wisdom of God with all of history from which to choose, selecting for his incarnation a period and a people which had such outlandish beliefs. It was the third morning of my research when I noticed something else. Whatever the pathology to which the first century gave the name demons possession, the approach that Jesus taught worked and worked instantaneously. When his disciples acted, people recovered on the spot from the symptoms or behavior which plagued them. But all are seemingly, sorry, let me try that again. For all are seemingly having arrived at a better diagnosis of these problems, we weren't even close to these simple people's performance in dealing with them. I knew of no psychiatrist, no matter how highly trained, who could alleviate psychosomatic symptoms with a word or take authority over paranoia. His patients got better when they did, only after slow and co- and costly treatments. It was just the same paradox as in other branches of medicine. Peter, Peter probably knew less than today's ten-year-old about human anatomy. But at his word, the lame leaped. Well, today, with all our knowledge, we correct lameness when we do only with painstaking surgical techniques. I believe in the instantaneous miraculous kind of healing described in the Bible, as well as in medical healing, because I had seen both happen. But the, by the same token, what about the casting out of evil influences on one's mind and body, which was mentioned in the Bible, at least as often as healing? Whether I understood it or not, people would people be helped? For, to be strictly true to my period in history, there was one question I had failed to ask, the one question which makes sense to a scientific and pragmatic age. Does it work? Experiment, observe, try it and see. These are the methods of my time and my place. I got up from the couch and stood At the window, watching the trees take shape in the first gray light of dawn. What if, for a few days or a few weeks, I were to act as if demons existed? Never mind trying to rationalize it. Just follow the Bible pattern exactly. Do what Jesus did. And see.